the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have Tiffany Bloom as our guest to talk about her new book, Pray Tell, why we silence women who tell the truth and how everyone can speak up. This book explores the complex dynamics of power and abuse in work settings within the church and beyond. It explores the cultural and spiritual narratives that silence women and illuminates the devastating emotional, financial, and social impact of silence in the face of injustice. So Tiffany, my first question for you is just what led you to write this book? What questions were you trying to answer? What problems were you trying to address? Yeah. Well, in my own experience, I was the girl who played by all the rules that faith and evangelical culture had set for me. So when I found myself in a situation that invited me to speak truth to power, I was shocked when the system failed me. When I spoke up and I lost more than I ever dreamed possible. And as I grappled with why I was not believed, I was seen as disposable and a man who abused his power at a woman's expense was seen as indispensable. I began to unearth why we silence women and just as you said, the societal, financial, professional, and spiritual ramifications for doing so. And it was eye-opening for sure as I really was able to see how in both sacred and secular culture, We silence women, we encourage them to self-silence, and it starts so young, and it is really how we've architected society to keep women as second, to subjugate them, and to keep them from their place as God intended. Tiffany, that was pretty good. That was pretty (laughs) smooth, all those those words right there. That was uh, very articulate. I, I really, I thought, whoa. Uh, that that was you covered about everything possible on that. It was uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, tell 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 us how women are silenced in churches because you're uh, you're coming at a topic that is incredibly sensitive yeah. because women take a lot of blame for not talking up. And yet women are also silenced. So there's, uh, I think it would be fair to call some kind of double, if not triple bind on women in these situations um, and in a man's culture. You know, all these things are coming into play. But how how are women silenced? Yeah, I think there's quite a few factors. I think first, women are silenced by their own families. If their family of origin was one that was more patriarchal in the home, they may see that it is not worth it to speak up, that they won't have any protection just from their family members. And one of the things I feature in Pray Tell is children as early as toddlers start to make excuses for their family and poor behavior and will start to... um, feel indebted to their parents, even if they've harmed them. And so, you know, starting in the family, if that if they don't see or sense value, I think then you move into um, that middle school, those years, and it's very common for middle school girls to have been harassed um, and even assaulted by their peers. And boys do it as a sign of manhood to impress boys and other girls to harass. And I think then you take that into college life and we see fraternity culture and how that plays out in the church is you take all those cultural and familial influences and then you combine them with the pain of the purity movement and this belief that women are deformed men or 
the existence of evil in the world or the reason for the fall and you take all of that to see that their bodies are only used for the pleasure of men and this is what they exist for and what you have is this existence where women are to be pursued and devoured and taken advantage of and that's just the way things are we've normalized this belief that women are only in existence for the pleasure of men and we uh, exploit that with scripture and then of course when you couple everything happening in this cultural moment and of course in the last 10 20 30 years for women in our day and age you see how that's really this double whammy of culture and the church reminding women that you better stay silent and if you don't if you don't we'll destroy you because what happens is we see women who are brave enough to speak up and we see them lose everything they hold dear. We see them um, painted as a harlot and the men who they are accusing are writing on their accolades and who are able to say, that's what she said, but look what I've done. How could you possibly reckon that I am both generous and benevolent and kind and also a monster <laughs> or a predator or abuser of power? We really struggle to see the dissonant view, don't we? We really struggle to, to see that, you know, men in this situation, when you're talking about abuse in church, are capable of both. Tiffany, that is, uh, it's a sad cultural construct. Yes. And it is, it is, you know, it's sad to say this is, this is a world that many women grow up in. I mean, I think it's probably fair to say all women grow up in it, but, uh, not all women experience the same same realities. One of the more fascinating things to me in your book, um, I think it, it's connected to what you've just said, is why, uh, I, I want to call them inner excuses. What are some inner excuses uh, that women use? I think they've internalized being silenced. Yeah. Uh, and so there's, you, you talk about, is it okay for me to call them inner excuses? You talk about excuses, but it seems to me like they're internalized excuses. Uh, explain that for us, would you? Absolutely. So that self-silence, that internal excuses, when the culture around you and the church around you is saying that you're the reason for men's downfall and that it is the onus is on you to escape abuse more than it is for men to behave justly, then women will believe that if something bad happened, it must have been uh. my fault. I either yeah. led him on yeah. or walked a certain way or held myself in such a manner that I invited or I deserved this because, you know, bad men only do dirty things to dirty women. So therefore I did this. I remember um, in my early 20s in the workplace, um, a superior said to me, you know, nobody, nobody would listen to you unless you were so beautiful. And I, I remember leaving, uh, leaving my experience in, in that moment with him thinking, man, I shouldn't have worn this dress today. I, oh, I did that. And that was, oh. you know, that was me growing up in the purity movement and feeling like everything was going to be my fault if things went sideways. And it manifested in the workplace of believing, wow, I somehow invited that comment by my hoop earrings and the dress I wore that day. And so as somebody who would consider themselves a pretty confident egalitarian woman, I was still internalizing those internal excuses yeah. that I did this. I somehow invited this and this is my fault. And that men can't control themselves, their appetite or their comments or their questions as if they lack personal responsibility. 
Tiffany, one of the things that uh, my daughter, Laura, not, not Laura Terrell, but uh, Laura Berenger, and I um, were so commonly uh, asked about, um, and what we saw in the story of Willow, we saw this in other stories. Uh, so it was it was throughout the Southern Baptist Church and Sovereign Grace and everybody else. Yeah. Is um, why do women wait? I mean, I think all these questions that I'm asking you, they're all connected to these cultural constructs. So, yeah. and I think you've really sketched that well already in what you said, but especially in your book Pray Tell, which I hope everybody buys. But why why do women wait? Why why, for instance, was the were so many people, uh, let's say, taken in by people who said Fonda Dyer waited? Why did she wait twenty years to bring this story? I think Bill Hybels said this. Yeah. You know, what what's this about? Well, what a good question. I think there's many reasons. Number one, I think that women have to wait till they are in a place emotionally, spiritually, and mentally where they can walk out the road and and consider the strength required to speak truth to power, even like you said, even if it's 20 years later, because there is a cost to that. I think of Dr. Kristen Blasey Ford. I think of Vonda Dyer, even if it's before you said her name, that's who I thought of. There is this moment when you realize what happened actually happened and identifying for what it was, this imbalance of power. And I think in the moment, we want to feel as women that we had more control over the situation than we did. Monica Lewinsky, it took her over 20 years to realize that a man abused his power. She held to the belief that it was a consensual relationship for the majority of her life. And then realizing, wow, this really happened to me. So then there's this reckoning of, did I let this happen to me? And there's some shame that goes with that. And then I think there's this understanding of I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. And for many of us, our paycheck depended on it and we had to feed our babies. And then I think there's this also just understanding of I'm now one of these women where this will always be a part of my story. Um, You know, I think of Chanel Miller, Brock Turner's uh, victim in the Stanford case. And she talks about how it took her so long to be able to even say out loud what happened to her, to even admit that the reality that she already knew that she could even bring herself to say it. So I think there's this process of healing that everyone will walk differently. And I think if there hasn't been the aid and the societal sympathy and empathy necessary to walk that journey and come to a place of health, it can feel impossible to speak truth to power. And it can feel impossible to believe that those shadowy figures who are narcissistic and gaslighting and manipulating you will stand down because I think when you're that victim, you are so convinced that this person in question will destroy you. And maybe they've even vocalized that I'll destroy you if you come after me. And so I think you're just this, this, this fear, you know, I think of um, one of the victims listed in Ravi Zacharias case, he told her, look what you would do to my ministry. Millions of people won't, won't believe in who God is and what he's done if you speak up. I mean, that's a that's a pretty heavy threat. That's a pretty pretty confusing threat. So, I think there's You know, Tiffany, a lot of a lot of people at Willow, you know, when when we when we were inquiring um why didn't people do things? Why didn't anyone speak up? I mean, we're not talking about seeing Bill Hybels with women so much as power mongering. And we've talked to other churches like James McDonald and others 
about the you know, people at those churches. And uh, it is common for them to say, I didn't want to hurt the ministry. Right. And so I that's, didn't want to hurt the that's witness. Con- that's right. I mean, that that's a part of this whole story, right? Right. Go. I want to go back to your other question of excuses. That is an excuse. Yeah. To believe that God divorces love and justice, to believe that he divorces uh, wholeness and goodness and health from the gospel and the advancement of the gospel is just ridiculous. I, I can't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'm with you. I can't count the time, <laughs> amount of times people said, don't, you know, if people speak up, that'll hurt the witness of the church. And last time I checked, my God will not be shaken. And yeah. we are hungry for healthy, whole spaces of worship. And when we're willing to hide that misconduct and couch it in spiritual language, we are going to do so much more damage for the kingdom than if we were to oh. operate with transparency. I totally and, agree with that, but boy, that is a that is a hard one to convince yeah, people. It is really that is telling the truth and bringing justice is better for the church than to silence injustices and abuses uh, for the sake of the gospel. I mean, it is so. It's crazy, yeah. and you know what is especially dangerous when you are not transparent and vulnerable with the truth, just like you said. There is room for an abuser of power to twist the narrative and give their version of the specifics. And that is, that's worse. And so our unwillingness um, as a church to speak the truth boldly and share what's happened behind closed doors will only give (laughs) an opportunity for, again, abuser of power to, to play the hand that he wants. And you know, the narrative, the narrative is so important to the abuser, to the people in power. Uh, we're, we're right That's now right. Uh, talking to to a woman in a church who is a pastor, who was a pastor, and um, refused to sign an NDA. She's done, no pay, out, can't, can't, is told can't come back to church, will, will not be able to tell her story except for people who contact her. Just like that, her email was shut off. She couldn't even recover her own emails. So that whole thing of controlling the narrative is so important to people in power who abuse. And, you know, I I think justice will come, but uh, the narrative control is such a big part of the story. And I I think uh, it's... It's a big reason why 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 women wait is that is that they're, they they realize they're not going to be able to control the story, and it's gonna it's gonna come back against them. They're going to be accused of all sorts of things. I, I saw some of that language in your book. Well, uh, a question I have um, that you bring up. This is this was a statement that when I read it in your book, it stunned me because I've heard it. Mm. Um, He's done so much for me. Oh, man. Talk about that. Oh, gosh, yeah. And you know what? That's that's the most tender, uh, tender part of this conversation is women who had proximity to power, who received goodness, opportunity, resources, platform, privilege, you know, financial compensation. I think Nancy Beach 
said it so well, nobody had given me more opportunity and nobody had exploited my loyalty. You know, this idea that um, this person who's abusing their power, they they know what you want. They know what you value. Mm -hmm. And the example I use Brilliant. in the book is Larry Nasser, And all these young girls knew that he was the doctor to go to and that if you wanted to win, you had to work with Larry Nasser. And all of these women saw like, oh, well, he's done so much for her. I mean, the same could be said of Harvey Weinstein, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow was this white flag he would wave. If you want what she has, you got to come with me. You got to let me help you. And so he would, he would be benevolent enough, generous enough so that there was this tie that you felt like I cannot betray this person, right? Then we feel like we're betraying to speak up in justice. So then we feel like it's going to be mud on our face. We feel like we are the abuser of power, that we are going against the will of God or the plans of God because we're willing to out an abuser of power. And I think there is nothing more convincing to a woman to not speak up than believing, well, he really has been so kind to me. He really has been just kind enough. And I think uh, we, we employ this euphoric recall. We only recall the good parts to keep ourselves silent or we'll only recall what he's done and we'll minimize what we've seen, witnessed, or personally experienced, because again, he's done so much for us. And I think that's a, that's a hard hill to climb. But as you understand that this is not an act of betrayal to speak up, it's an act of justice yeah. to speak up. Once you're able to reframe the truth and see it for what it is and see how silence demands nothing of you, but speaking up will could very likely demand everything. And knowing that a, a perpetrator of abuse is counting on you, is counting on you to stay silent because they have done something for you. They've invested in that mm. bank, hoping they can cash out at just the right time. Well, that was that was very good and insightful about how that narrative works and how that little dimension, of, I mean, it's not little, it's, it's huge. Uh, because um, this is held over people who are, in, you know, it's not just women, but it's it's other people as well. It's men, yeah. young men who want to become somebody. I, yeah. I had a pastor uh, the other day tell me that a, a powerful person in his life said, if you don't do what I say, I will destroy your ministry. Oh. I mean, this, and, and this pastor said to me, he had given me everything I had ever had. Every opportunity was because of him. So that sort of, uh, I mean, Tiffany, I got to tell you, as a, as a New Testament professor, as a Christian, I look at this and I think, how can Christian people who are leaders act like this? It is incomprehensible to me. I mean, we all probably say things we shouldn't say. We all, um, you know, none of us is a perfect leader. But there, this is so calculated and cruel and power mongering that... It's gone way beyond uh, a peccadillo of someone growing in their Christian life to a character pattern that is deep enough. Um, okay, now, it was big uh, in my own study to think about culture, that, that, are, that, that these powerful people don't exist just on their own. They can, but by and large, uh, you talk about enablers. What, what about enablers? I, I call them sometimes retainers. They retain the power, retain the structures, the system. What about enablers? Yeah. Uh, 
I want to combine that with your last comment. I think as you just mentioned, a devastating account of a young man coming to you and sharing news of the very worst kind. We often see how those who have power and those who've gained more access to unchecked power will often shed the virtues that got them there in the first place. And we praise these leadership qualities that are, just as you said, cruel, calculated, uh, fear-mongering, and we praise them as leadership qualities necessary to run an organization, necessary to run a ministry. And they have no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, not a not not one bite. <laughs> and then you think of how does it happen? Just as you said, because of retainers, because of enablers, because it's it's the one punch where someone abuses their power. It's the second punch when the enablers to step in to make sure you do not retaliate, to make sure that the status quo stays at is is. And those enablers who do the bidding of the abuser of power, who are willing to leverage their place in the system to advance the agenda of, a, of, an, of an abusive leader, are willing to do so because they often have skin in the game, whether it's um, yeah. investments, finance, you know, money or clout or reputation. They are willing to lay it all on the line and drink the Kool-Aid for someone who is just absolutely out of their mind, quite frankly. Yeah. Oh, you know, okay, this, this raises a question. Uh, Lawrence heard me say this. I think pastors are people who pastor people. All right? Now, that doesn't sound very smooth, but it, it's true. I, I really wonder if the category of leader, using the term leader, being obsessed with leader is not simultaneously um, a departure from the true calling of a pastor and the absorption of categories of power that come from another world. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I'm, I'm a person who is terribly bothered that, that pastors use the word leader not there's times when you can't avoid this term, but that they see themselves as leaders bugs me to no end. I think they should see themselves as pastors. Yeah. And so I, I'm a fan of Eugene Peterson. You know, he's out from your area. Um, he, he saw himself as sort of a helping people learn to worship God and kind of nudging them along in spiritual formation rather than, let's say, out in charge and you people come follow me. And if you don't, okay, I've said enough. What, any thoughts on that? Oh, wow. I, I mean, that's a hot take. First of all, that is, that is a powerful um, statement you've just made, but you're not wrong. You're not wrong. When we obsess over power versus the role of a shepherd, which is just, as you said, to help others find their faith and walk along with the Lord. Like, we have missed something where we continually <laughs> elevate. And what it does, Scott, is it creates this space where leaders, quote unquote leaders, they, they, <laughs> they often believe that they're immune to dissent. They're immune yeah, to accusations. Yeah. They're immune to what everyone else needs to follow. The rules don't apply to them because they're what? Yeah. Because they're a leader. They're, yeah. They, they yeah. are answering to someone higher. They don't need accountability anymore because they're above you. And so it creates this hierarchy that is unnecessary, unhelpful, and is ripe for scandal. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that, that's good. I, I totally am with you. Now, um, we, we, we can't move on um, without talking about what we can do. Yeah. So, uh, and because it, it gets depressing. I, I can tell you this. Um, I'm, I'm tired of the story. I'm wearied by the stories of pastors. We get, my daughter and I get two to five stories a week. Oh my goodness. I've had, I've had four this week. A lot of them are just emails and it's wearying. And so, um, but I want to know what you think we can do in these situations. uh, And you define these terms very well, sexual harassment, sexual abuse. Um, And I even, I was talking to my wife about this and I said, there's, there's a, there's a lower level of gender inappropriateness. You know, that, you know, I don't know if that's quite morally bad, but it shouldn't have happened. Right. And then, you know, it becomes sexual uh, harassment, sexual abuse. What can we do? I know you talk about this. So share it with our listeners. Right. Uh, First of all, I want to encourage you with a story that I got this morning. Um, A gal reached out to me. She got an advanced reader copy of Pray Tell. And after reading it, and processing, she confessed to her mom what had happened to her and is pursuing legal action against a former high school principal. So I just wow. want to encourage you that you were, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm receiving stories that grieve me. And I think that there's some secondhand trauma to that as we wade into these waters because we long for justice and goodness. It, but at the same time, it's heavy. It's not exactly a stocking stuffer conversation, yeah. you know? Um, so what do we do about it? I think, okay, first, before we see this happen, like you said, that that inappropriateness, before we see something that's on CNN or Christianity Today, what do we do about it? And I think it's aptly titled Bystander Intervention. Just everyday, normal, Joe and Jill, we can do something about this. When we see impropriety in the church foyer or at the water cooler, and we see, we're going to call him Doug, hope you don't have a good friend named Doug, when we see Doug just posturing, or maybe he puts his hand on Rosie's back when they're chatting and you see that Rosie's visibly uncomfortable and Doug's not reading those cues. When you just see something that's a little off, you can walk up and just change the subject. Hey, Rosie, I had something at the copier. I I, I wanted to fill you in on the way there about a new project. Or, hey, did you want to go to the coffee station before we drop our kids off at Sunday school? The littlest thing to just change the situation. And then I think we go to uh, the man in this case who has overstepped his his plow, his power or his platform in that moment and say, hey man, did you see how you came across to so-and-so? I don't know if you knew, but it, I could definitely tell she was uncomfortable. Now this person's on watch. They've been seen <laughs> and someone knows. Even just that slight, slight understanding. Somebody's watching me. Somebody saw that. Somebody saw that encounter, the, how much I compliment women on their appearance or somebody's watching. And then I think we also go back to a woman to feel seen and to feel known. And she might say, no, everything's fine. She might say, I don't know what you're talking about. Or she might say, hey, this guy's been bugging me for weeks and I feel so uncomfortable, but I don't know what to do. And then we make ourselves available. If you ever need to go talk to a small group leader, an elder, a pastor, if you ever need to go to HR, I can go with you. You don't have to do this alone. We can lend our strength because the truth is 90% of us are going to be that bystander. And we have to ask ourselves, is it my responsibility? And that's what Pray Tell is all about. It's for the bystander. What is our role? 
And we sometimes think, not my circus, not my monkeys, but the truth is we each have a responsibility to act, to, to show up in that moment. And now let's talk about if we this is happening where we're at and where we work and worship, what do we do? I think first we must lament. We must lament that this is happening. And then I think we can listen without judgment, um, truly to listen and withhold uh, judgmental questions, which are, it's so easy to be like, well, are you sure? Or, oh, are you, did that really happen? Or, but what were you wearing? It's so easy to let those things slip out of our mouth and re-trigger trauma. So just active listening, consider our body language, consider our facial expressions, and then we can learn, we can learn, we can read your book, we can read Pritel, we can learn how this happens. And we must understand this is happening everywhere, this imbalance of power and abuse at a woman's expense. And then we can understand that love looks like justice. They are not divorced from each other. And I think especially as you've um, talked about, it, it, can, it can feel that in a church this is happening in a vacuum and that we don't need to seek um, recompense or redress for someone who's been harmed and they just need to be quick to forgive um, even without repentance from the abuser of power. And that's not, that's not of God to seek justice is holy and it's good and it's right. And we cannot uh, deconstruct broken systems until we're willing to seek justice. Yeah, that's very good. Tiffany, this has been a great interview. I've really, um, uh, you uh, you take what you've got in the book and you're going further. This is, uh, this is deep in your bones. It is. And um, I really appreciate uh, what you're saying here. I hope everybody who's listening to this buys your book and reads it and implements it in churches, gets leaders to read it. I hope in insta Christian institutions, I hope they're all reading it. So this is going to be good for women uh, to have a book to help them articulate what they're experiencing and seeing and plenty of wisdom in this book to keep people um, growing uh, in, a, in a direction of what we call a Tove culture. So right. I just want to thank you. Oh, thank you, sir. What an honor. Hmm. Well, Tiffany, I really appreciate I think I've, I've learned a lot just in this short conversation, but I think that idea that God cares deeply about justice. And um, I think my other takeaway is the idea that we don't need to defend God's mission. He's perfectly capable of handling his own mission. Um, and that by telling the truth and by pursuing justice, we're not risking his mission at all. God's mission will continue. It will go forward. Um, and just the idea that um, women should speak their truth, um, that, that the church can handle it, that we should support them in it and protect them. Um, and that, that this is something that all of the church should be able to get behind and pursue together. So just to remind you all, our guest today has been Tiffany Bloom. Her new book is Pray Tell. I think it's going to be a game changer for a lot of women to read this and to be reminded of the value that they have in the Lord's eyes and um, that God wants us to serve together in health and wholeness. So thank you to our listeners for being here. We look forward to be you being with us next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 